open your copy of God's Word this morning to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, we'll be in Matthew 5 verse 3 this morning. In 2002, I traveled to Brazil with a mission team. At the end of the mission trip, we went to Rio de Janeiro for a couple days. I guess it was just a day, I think, to see the city before we flew out. And while there, we went to two of the the most well-known sites in the modern world. One was the Christ statue that looks over the city. We took a train up uh, to the Christ statue. It was a story in itself. We can catch up on that one later. But the other thing we went to was Sugarloaf Mountain. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of Sugarloaf Mountain, but Sugarloaf Mountain is just this big chunk of granite that sticks up from the Atlantic Ocean about 1,300 feet. And the way you get to the top of Sugarloaf Mountain is a cable car. Okay, So you're 1,300 feet up, and you go over the Atlantic Ocean to get there. And I really wanted to go... I'd seen pictures, and I knew that the view from there was spectacular, but the the thought of going up a cable car with 64 of my best friends dangling helplessly over the Atlantic Ocean was not really uh, striking a chord with me. But the reality was, is I stood helpless in that moment to get to the top outside of that cable car. There was no other way to do it. There was no no way I was climbing the face of that sheer granite to get there. I had to go through the cable car if I was going to ascend that mountain. We come to Matthew 5 and verse 3. We hear Jesus starting the Sermon on the Mount. And he starts in a place that calls us to remind ourselves or to know or to remember that just as helpless as I was to get up that mountain on my own, we are all the more helpless to ascend the hill of the Lord on our own. We cannot come into a relationship with God. We cannot be reconciled with God on our own. We are helpless to do so. And that is where Jesus starts his Sermon on the Mount, is with the reality that we are spiritually helpless and we are in absolute need of God for to, in order to have a relationship with him, in order to be called those who are blessed. Let's pick up in Matthew 5. We'll start in 1 and go to 3. Again, we understand Jesus, in verse 1, seeing the crowds who had started following him. He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, as we walk through the Beatitudes, and we we talk about these eight Beatitudes in verses 1 through 10, I, I, I have to remind you, and you'll hear this over and over and over again, that this is not some type of instruction manual where you go, okay, step number one, step number two, step number three, and all the way this, to step number eight in order to attain salvation. It is not a way that we merit God's favor or earn our salvation. Instead, this is a description of how those live who have been shown God's favor. So when we are his, when we are his people, we are a part of the kingdom, this is what it looks like. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, 
the Beatitudes flip upside down everything that the world would say brings blessing. When we read the Beatitudes, we look and say, you know, we understand that these are really quite radical of what the world would identify as this is how you're blessed. This is what it means to be blessed. And verse 3 starts off right away by, by correcting this sinful notion that we are righteous, that, that it's the good, the righteous, the religious that are blessed, that earn their way to heaven, that achieve God's favor. Instead, according to Jesus, we see that, that it is the poor in spirit who are blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what I want us to do with this statement is ask three questions. And it, it brings us to the first question, and perhaps the most important for this verse is, is what does it mean for Jesus to say, blessed are the poor in spirit? When, when he says that, what is he meaning? Well, well, the word poor is what we would understand it to be. It, it simply means one who is destitute and in utter need. It's the same exact word that Jesus uses later in Luke 16, 19 to 31, where he describes Lazarus, the poor beggar, in comparison to, to Simon, the, the one who is, is rich and, and Lazarus is poor. But here, the, Jesus is not talking about a financial poverty. He's not speaking of, of one who is just financially poor, who we would see on the side of the road begging because they, poor, they are poor and they don't have the means to provide for themselves physically. That's not what Jesus is speaking of. We understand that because here Jesus locates and gives the context of the poverty that he's discussing. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the, the locale of our poverty. It's those who are poor in spirit. He's referring to those who are not spiritually arrogant, not those who are filled with spiritual pride, but he's referring to those who personally recognize and acknowledge that they are spiritually impoverished. They are spiritually needy. They know that they need Christ. They know that they are sinners. They know that they need God's mercy. He's describing those who know that their righteousness is lacking, it's insufficient, and it's worthless before a holy God. That is the ones that Jesus is describing. He's describing those who stand and sing before him and worship him and sing, nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. There's nothing that I have to offer. I'm impoverished, I'm poor, I'm destitute, and all I have to offer is myself because I don't have anything else. I just cling to you because my righteousness is lacking and nothing in my hand I bring. Now, when Jesus says this, though, he's not teaching that we devalue ourselves. He, he is not saying that we look upon ourselves and we just see that we're, we're worthless. We have no meaning. We're purposeless. This, this is not Christianity. That's not the biblical worldview. On the, on the contrary, God's word from cover to cover teaches that, that man does have supreme value. He is created in God's image. He's the pinnacle of God's creation so we as God's creation have meaning worth and intrinsic value because we've been made in his image but while we have that value as being created in God's image we do not have the means or the righteousness in ourselves to restore the relationship with him that's been broken so we do have immense value and worth as God's creation but we do not have the means to establish or restore or reconcile our relationship with him essentially it's what the psalmist talked about in 
If you look back at Psalm 15 and Psalm 24, the question is, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? And the answer is, is quite lofty. It's the, the one whose way is blameless, who, who has pure hands and a pure heart. When we come to that hill, though, and we look and we are confronted with that statement, we understand that I do not have a pure heart. I do not have clean hands. Nothing in my hands I bring. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. So when Jesus says, poor in spirit, he does not mean that we devalue ourselves. However, being poor in spirit does indeed contradict what the world would teach about who we are. The world does not just say, you know what, you have meaning and value, and so because you have meaning and value, uh, you, you, you grow and you pursue and you can attain righteousness. The world even steps back, and the teaching of the world is not that you are even created. In fact, the, the world is going to teach that you are not created. That, that you're some type of uh, evolved accident. And what this does, it leaves you void of any intrinsic worth, any value based on the fact that you were created. And in contrast, the next step from what the world teaches is in contrast to Matthew 5.3, it teaches you to rely on who? On self. It teaches us to rely on self. The world is going to teach to rely on what I can do. So the world applauds self-confidence, self-expression, self-esteem. They're all prized as the pinnacle of self-actualization. The pinnacle, the high point of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is defined by the highest level of psychological development where personal potential is fully realized after basic bodily and ego needs have been fulfilled. Listen, if your goal is to be self-actualized, you're going to fail. That's not what God created you to be. He did not create you to be self-actualized, to find everything in self. He created you to be God-glorifying and exalting, and that you would find your meaning, your value in Him. But the world is going to lead you to be self-made, self-reliant, self-sustaining. That's the goal of our individualistic society. It's driving you to look within and to think about self, 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 self. The world proclaims you're good enough. You can be good enough. The world proclaims that, that you can do enough. You can, in fact, do anything you put your mind to. Well, that certainly has its limits. It doesn't matter how hard Shaquille O'Neal tries and puts his mind to be in a horse jockey. It's not going to work. He can't be anything he sets his mind to. Because God has made him to be a certain way. It's not found in self. Jesus doesn't list, have a list of self-expression, a list of self-reliance, a self-dependency, and a self-esteem. He doesn't list any of these things as bringing blessing. He does not cause us to look within ourselves to find value and righteousness but he looks he calls us to look in ourselves and to see that we are poor in spirit we cannot save ourselves self does not save self does not make holy what we need to see when we look within is we need to behold god in his glory in his splendor in his holiness and take a step back and then see ourselves in comparison to him because the reality is is when we truly gaze upon god and behold him in his holy splendor when we gain a glimpse of his righteous perfection then in that moment when we see that when we behold that we understand our own spiritual poverty we understand that we are lacking it's kind of like i was thinking this week it's kind of like the the man who's kind of the top dog 
in his village of 75 people. Everybody looks to him. Everybody steps back when he walks by. He is powerful, and, and he leads that, that village of 75 people settled in the mountains. And then this man comes, and he meets the man who is the ruler of the known world in control of the greatest nation, the greatest army, has all the wealth of the world at his fingertips. This man who leads a 75-person village all of a sudden realizes how weak he is, how little he controls, how little he has. We can think that we are the stuff. We can think we're big. We can think we're great until we behold the King of kings and the Lord of lords and we see him in his holy splendor. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He says, if one feels anything in the presence of God save an utter poverty of spirit, it ultimately means that you have never faced him. When, when Calvin started his Institutes of the Christian Religion, he wrote this. He said, It is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. For we always seem to ourselves just and upright and wise and holy. Don't we? If we just look at ourselves, we think, man, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm pretty smart. I'm a pretty smart cookie. He says, we always seem to ourselves just and upright and wise and holy until we're convinced by clear evidence of our injustice, our vileness, folly, and impurity. Convinced, however, we are not if we look to ourselves only and not to the Lord also. He being the only standard by the application of which this conviction can be produced. What he's saying there is, is as long as I keep on just looking at myself, and even if I compare myself and look and go, you know, I'm going to compare myself to this person, is we're great at picking out the people who we look good around, right? We're great at figuring out, hey, I, I'm better than that guy, so I'm going to compare myself to him. If I only do that, it's easy for me to think, hey, I'm a pretty good guy. I, I, I'm doing good. But, but Calvin says, listen, when you come and you stand before the, God, before the God of the universe that's holy and righteous and perfectly good in all his ways, when you stand before him, you are struck with your vileness, your folly, your impurity, your injustice, your lack of wisdom. You see who you really are. It's the same reaction. Just think about some biblical examples of those who are poor in spirit, that, that look upon God and they respond with their poverty of spirit. Think about Isaiah. Do you remember when Isaiah sees God seated on his throne and he sees the cherubim and seraphim around him uh, just saying over and over and over, holy, 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 holy. What does Isaiah say? Me too, God. I'm holy. Look at me. Look how good I am. No. Isaiah says, woe is me for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Or what about Luke chapter 5? When Peter, do you remember, Jesus has come out and he's in the, the boat and he tells the fishermen, he tells Peter, one of them, he says, hey, cast your nets over there and pull them back up and see what happens. And they're thinking, hey, we've been fishing all day. We're not doing that. And he said, just do it. And so they, they do, and when they do, they, they pull up, the nets almost sink the boats. And they pull up this big catch and jesus i mean uh, peter seeing this he sees jesus perform this miracle something he's never seen before again peter doesn't go well that's pretty good but i mean have you seen how good i am i mean i'm a pretty good guy no what does peter say he says 
depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Depart from me. He's confronted. He sees it in the face of God. He is a sinner. In Psalm 34, 6, David calls himself a poor man and rejoices in God. He says, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. This is King David. He's not poor. He's not poor as the world would define poverty. No, but he understands in the face of God, he is poor in spirit. Again, in verse, or Psalm 40, verse 17, he says, I am poor and needy. I'm poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me, he says. I'm poor and needy. What about Philippians 3? Do you remember, do you remember Paul? Do you remember what he said in Philippians 3? He, he's talking to the Philippians and he's telling them about all that he had attained, who he was. He says, if, if anyone takes confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, so as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Of all man's standards, religiosity, man, I had it. I was it. I was the stuff. But then he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and found, be found in Him. Why? Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. In that moment, Paul doesn't say, listen, well, God, you're pretty amazing, and you're pretty impressive, but I want you to remember all that I've done. No, Paul looks and he sees all that he's done, and he says, man, that is lost. That's, that's rubbish. It's meaningless. It's worthless. I, I can't attain righteousness. I can't come to a place where I look before God and say, I'm righteous before you. It doesn't matter because all that's lost in comparison to the righteousness of God through Christ that depends on faith. He was poor in spirit. He was poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit means that we have looked upon God and understand that we do not have the spiritual resources or means to merit salvation or to live out everything that God calls us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. That is what it means to be poor in spirit. We come and we see that we need Jesus. We're impoverished. We are destitute. We are spiritual beggars. Then the reality is that Jesus starts here because all who come to God for salvation through Christ have to come poor in spirit. We do not come to God carrying our good works, carrying our spiritual heritage, carrying our finances, our checkbook, or our theological knowledge. We don't bring any of that. If you're here today, you're not a believer and you're trying to get to this certain spot, you're trying to clean your life up to get to a place where you're good enough to be saved, if you're, you're thinking, I, I'm going to do this, and I, I'm doing pretty well, and I'm, I'm going to learn more, I just need to understand more, that it's not that. That's not what saves you. That's, that's as though you're coming to Christ and going, hey, I, I'm going to trust you because I'm bringing this stuff. I'm going to trust you and uh, these good works that make me look good. That, that's not it. We are saved when we come before God and we stand before Him and say, there's nothing in my hands that I bring. There's nothing I have. Nothing that attains your righteousness. I can't do it. 
but I'm going to cling to the cross. I'm going to trust you. I'm impoverished in spirit, but I trust you. It's the one who, who comes and says that, that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Nothing less. I, I can't do it. I, I can't trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly trust and lean and call upon the name of Christ. It's the same, the same person who, who sings from their heart that my hope is found in Christ alone. It's in Christ alone that my hope is found. Nothing else. Nothing. Not in my works. Not in things that I can attain. He alone is my salvation. He alone is our salvation. The Lord is our salvation. Not my works. Not my righteousness. The Lord is our salvation. And so all of us are, are confronted with that option, with that choice. Will we trust Christ? Will we turn from trying to earn our way to heaven? Will we turn from saying, well, I'm really smart. Look at this degree I have. Look at this training I have. Look at this family I have. Look at these vehicles I have. Look at how many times I've been to church. Look at how nice I am to people. Look at how I volunteer at God's food pantry. Look at how I volunteer at AIM. Look at how I'm here and I teach Sunday school. Will we turn from all of that and realize that none of that is anything? It's all lost in comparison to knowing Christ none of it merits salvation we are spiritually poor impoverished needy and destitute and we come before him and all we can do is cling to Christ if you've never come to that point I don't care if this is the first time you've walked into church or if you've sat in churches all your life in your suit and your tie and you've dressed up and you've gone to all the classes, you're in every grace equipping class. If you've never come to the point where you look and you see God in his holy splendor and might and you see yourself as one who is impoverished and needy, then I would call you to repent and trust in Christ today. Repent and trust in Christ today. Turn from your sinfulness, come to him and say, God, there is nothing in my hand I bring. But I'm looking to the cross and I trust Jesus as my Lord and my Savior today. Would you please save me, oh God? Would you turn to him in faith? Now, before we move on to another question, we need to hear and heed the warning that Pastor Bill read in Revelation 3. Do you understand, church, that it is possible for us to come to Christ in poverty of spirit, in poorness of spirit, and lose sight of that? Revelation 3, if you want to turn there, you can. Revelation 3, verse 14. If you're not familiar with your Bible, Revelation is in the very end. It's the last book of the Bible. He... He's addressing this not to unbelievers. This letter is addressed to the church. To the church in Laodicea, he writes. Now, what's the problem of the church here? They're, they're lukewarm. He says, I, I see your works. You're, you're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. I, I wish you were one or the other. But because you're lukewarm... Neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. They, they were apathetic. They were complacent. The church was. Why? Why are they lukewarm? Listen to why. Verse 17. For you say, I am rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. <laughs> 
the church, those who come poor in spirit to faith in Christ, legalism and, and, and self-righteousness has slipped in to where they say, I, I'm, I'm rich, I've, I've prospered, I don't need anything. And what's the sign of that? What's the evidence of that? They're lukewarm, they're complacent, they're apathetic. Does that describe any of the church in America? Does that describe anyone sitting in here or listening online today that you're apathetic you're complacent you're just kind of lukewarm could it be that when you came to faith you were poor in spirit you looked and said i can't save myself i'm wholly leaning on jesus name but now you've kind of gone well you know i've made it i've arrived i'm all right i can do it i mean look at what i know now i didn't know that then look what i know now i know where the books of the bible are i can quote scripture i know theological terms i can dialogue and interact with you on the deepest level theologically i don't need anything i'm rich now look at the council jesus said you say that not realizing what that you're wretched you're pitiable you're poor you're blind you're naked you don't realize your true state it doesn't change you're still fully dependent on me you can't go about living life saying i'm rich I've made it, I've arrived. No, that what you have is a result of my grace in your life, yet not I, but Christ through me. That's where it comes from. And so what is the counsel? Verse 18, I counsel you to do what? Jesus says, come, come to me. Buy from me gold refined by fire, that, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself in shame, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom i love i reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent listen some of us need to hear these words and be struck by the reality that we have allowed legalism and self-righteousness and self-reliance to come in to where we would say hey we're okay we're all right and the result and the evidence as we look in the mirror and we see a life that is complacent lethargic apathetic the things of the Lord don't stir, stir our hearts. Our soul is not moved to bless the name of God. We just sit week in and week out and go about our day and our business. And we need God to look at us and remind us that we are spiritually impoverished before Him. We are poor in spirit. May we never, never be those who are so callous to forget our utter and absolute need for God Almighty. The poor in spirit. But there's another question I want to ask of this verse. A second question, what does it mean that theirs is the kingdom of heaven? What does it mean to say that? The A.T. Robertson, the Greek scholar, described the kingdom of heaven as the reign of God in heart and life. It, it refers to Christ's rule, his his dominion, all of that which he reigns over. It's, it's not limited to any kind of geographic boundaries. It's not limited to a, a certain time. It's not limited to any particular ethnic roots. It's all that which Christ rules over as King of kings and Lord of lords. It's that which came, which was proclaimed. Do you remember Matthew 3, 2? Remember John the Baptist? 
comes preaching and he says, repent, why? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, when he begins preaching in Matthew 4, 17, says the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is that which has come in the coming of Christ and it is that which will come in fullness and glory when it's culminated at the return of Christ. And so when we see that statement, there's two aspects we read there that we need to understand. Two aspects of this, this statement, this reality. It says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. First, we, we understand this already aspect. We talked about this last week a little bit. We touched on it, this already not yet theme that we're going to see going through the Beatitudes, right? And we see that here, this already. This, it understands the is there as regarding present realities. Something that has already happened. Something that is ours. It's the same thing. Colossians 1.13 says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It is something that has happened. We have been delivered as the people of God from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God. Matthew 5.10, we'll get to that in a few weeks, but it says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Why? The same thing. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In, in Philippians 3, verses 17 to 20, Paul is appealing to the people there, the church, to follow God, to walk in Christ in a manner worthy of the calling of Christ on their life. And this is what he reminds them of. He says, in so doing, remind you, I say, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. There may be all kinds of challenges and, 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 and oppression and opposition coming upon you, but you need to remember as you live out your faith in Philippi and as you live out your faith in Somerset, Kentucky, and wherever that may be today, that your citizenship, believer, is in heaven. Not will be, but it currently is. We are currently citizens of heaven. Our residency is secure. We live for and represent the King of Kings, Jesus we no longer live just according to the standards and the rules and the values of this world, but according to those of the kingdom of God's. We seek not that which the kingdom of the world, of the United States or any other nation around the world, would say this is blessing. This is what it means to be blessed. We don't seek that. We seek that which God says is blessed, who God says is blessed. We are currently residents and citizens, the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But it also has an eschatological aspect, a, a long-term aspect, a future aspect, the returning of Christ. So first, the first aspect is this already. The second aspect is this not yet. And this understands is regarding a future inheritance. Later in Matthew, we'll get to Matthew uh, 24 and 25 where, where Jesus talks about the coming of uh, uh, the return, the end times and, and his return, his coming. And it, he says this, he says, then, and this is Matthew 25, 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So in that moment, inherit, come inherit what is yours. It is ours, now inherit it in its fullness. In 1 Peter 1, 3-5, we read a similar statement. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Listen, we walk through life as the people of God, knowing that we are heirs to an eternal home. 
we walk through life knowing that what awaits us is better. This life is not all there is. We walk through life knowing that this world does not contain our greatest hope. Our hope is in Christ and in Him alone. And the certainty of our inheritance should lead to a great source of hope, to a deepening faith, to a sure confidence that we live our lives for Him and in Him. It's why you, you've seen, you know, that, that, final, that final stanza of in Christ alone where, where you've seen no, no, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, right? From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. And we get down to the end. He says, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me where? Home. So he calls me home. What is ours? What will be ours? Here in the power of Christ I stand. A a future promise gives present certainty. Believer, the kingdom of heaven is yours. It's yours. A final question. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. What, what does he say? Look at, just look at how it's worded. Blessed might be the poor in spirit. Blessed will be the poor in spirit. It doesn't say that, does it? Uh, you know, we like the poor in spirit and we hope that one day they'll receive a blessing. If they pray enough, if their faith is strong enough, you know, maybe they'll be blessed. It doesn't say that. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. The present tense is important. It's important. Listen, you gathered today that are Christians, that are followers of Jesus. I want us to walk out those doors today knowing that we are blessed in Christ. We're blessed in Christ. There's rich blessing in being a follower of His, but how? How? Listen, I I want to just remind you, these are just a few of the blessings afforded to the poor in spirit, okay? In in Isaiah 57, 15, we read, we meditated on the God whose name is holy, right? He dwells with the one, he says he dwells with the one who is what? Contrite and lowly in heart. The one who is poor in spirit. What does that mean? We're blessed with the presence of God. He dwells with us believers in in isaiah 66 1 through 2 we read about the god whose throne is in heaven earth is his footstool he needs nothing he needs nothing yet it says that he looks upon he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at his word he looks upon you you're blessed with the fact that god looks upon you and places favor on you in 1 John 5, 11-12, we're blessed with the certainty of eternal life in Him. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. We live with certainty, believers. In 1 Peter 1, 3-5, we just talked about, we're blessed with the certainty of our salvation and our inheritance that fills us with a living hope, a certain hope that we live every day with. In Matthew 7, 24 to 27, we're blessed with knowing that our lives rest on solid ground, that the storms of life, they 
are coming. If they haven't hit your home yet, they will hit your home. And when those storms of life come, the believer is blessed with the fact that we rest on solid ground and no storm of life will ever shake our foundation, which is Christ. In Psalm 119, 105, we're blessed with the truth that God's word lights our path. We walk in a dark day, a day of confusion, but we have the word of God believers to light our path. In John 14, 15 to 16, we're blessed with the presence of God in our lives daily, that he is with us. A theme that started in the Old Testament, continues through the New Testament, will be the reality for the believer for all eternity. Praise God. Ephesians 2, 13 to 19, we're blessed with being part of the people of God, that we gather in this place with the people of God to encourage us, spur us on, build us up in him. In Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, we're blessed to have a great high priest who can sympathize with all of our weaknesses that we come to and we pray to and we know that he is interceding for us on our behalf before God the Father. In Romans 8, 1, we're blessed to know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. In Romans 8, 28 and 29, we're blessed to know that we live every day and experience every trial, every tribulation, knowing that God works these things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. In Colossians 1.14, we're blessed with the knowledge that our sins are forgiven, that we have redemption. In Matthew 6, 25 to 34, we're blessed with the understanding that God provides for every need that we have. We don't need to worry that God cares intimately for us and he is involved intimately in our lives. In Revelations 14, 13, we're told that we're blessed because when we die in Christ, we rest from the labors of this life and we are brought into glory in the presence of God Almighty. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we're blessed to know that death has not won the final victory, that Christ has arisen, he has defeated death, we do not fear death, it is not the end, but it is the moment that Paul described as gain for the believer when we leave this world and we gain Christ and dwell in his presence. To be absent from the body is to be present with Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God, believers, you are blessed, all who are poor in spirit are rich in Christ and we rest in that and we walk day by day by day knowing the blessing that is ours in Christ and it's not because of what I've attained it's not because of what you've attained it's not because anything we can earn or merit is because of the grace of God the mercy of God in our lives that saved us through Christ and his work on the cross you believer are blessed you're blessed Don't forget it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray.